Two scripture readings this morning, Psalm 16, and a passage from Matthew 13 as well. Psalm 16, this is God's holy word, inspired, infallible, inerrant. He gives it to us, his people, for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. Psalm 16, a miktam of David. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Amen. Matthew 13. Going to the New Testament now, Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. Hear once again God's holy word. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I thought it would be appropriate if we took our time in the word this morning to think about the the meaning uh, of profession of faith, why we do it, why we uh, delight to stand up and say that Christ is my Lord, the meaning of it and, and the significance, and also um, the, the confidence that we see the scriptures put forth for us in regards to having Christ as your Lord and finding in him to be the treasure of your souls. So we're taking a pause from the book of Judges today, and so no sermons about tent pegs through the temple or daggers through the belly. That's not so that I can be respectful to our visitors, that's more to tempt the visitors, because I know everybody wants to hear sermons about tent pegs through the temple and daggers to the belly. So we're going through Judges, and we'll get back to that in coming weeks. But today, I wanted to think about the meaning of profession of faith and the vows that that we've seen today and the glory of finding the pearl of great price, 
which is Jesus Christ himself. So the the life-transforming reality for us today is that when uh, the loves of our heart are rightly ordered, and we'll, we'll unpack that a bit, but when the loves of our heart are rightly ordered with God at the top and everything else underneath that, and when we find the unshakable joy that comes through the gospel, then we have the confidence to seek God for God's own sake. In other words, seeking God and loving God, it needs no justification outside of itself because when we seek God, when we love God, when we serve him, we are doing that for which we were created. That's why we were created, to love God, to know him, to serve him, and to seek him. So first, this idea of having our loves rightly ordered. Psalm 16 says this. It begins with relying on God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I I, I can't lean on my own strength. I know that I don't have the strength within myself to uh, provide, to stand on my own. I need God to be my strength and my refuge. We then advance to an acknowledgement of who he is. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I say to him, you are my God. You are the one who holds jurisdiction over my life and over my soul. And then it comes to this very beautiful proclamation of, I have no good apart from you. In you I have found, in other words, the ultimate good. We speak often of being heavenly minded, heavenly mindedness and We speak of being grounded in heaven. In Colossians chapter 3, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We've been raised to heaven. That's what we said today in Ephesians chapter 1. That the heavenly life which God has given to us is of his grace and the anchor of our souls, that which is the basis of our life here on earth, is not here on earth, it's in heaven. We are called then to be heavenly minded. There is something we should also say in connection with that though is that uh, it could be taken to unhelpful extremes such that someone is of, of such heavenly mindedness that they're of no earthly good. Being so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly good. Now that seems to be extremely difficult in our day and age. We live in a, in a world that, in a society, in a culture that is much more bound to earth than it is heavenly minded. But it is good to name that as a danger. You can be so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly good. There was, uh, I was listening to something this week and uh, one, of the, one of the members of this show pointed out something really interesting. Is that that, that that old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, there's, there's a line in there that's actually not very helpful when it comes to the, the biblical vision of the things that we love. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. That's actually not the biblical vision. Uh, the biblical vision of the good life, of loving God, of serving him, is that when the light of our love of God shines brighter And if that is the the, the brightest light of our love in our lives, it actually, you know, kind of takes the dimmer switch and turns it up on all of the other loves that we have. So if Christ is the ultimate love, if the triune God is our ultimate love, it actually enables and empowers us to love other things in our life that are true and good and beautiful, to love them even more. 
This is my father's world, the birds their carols raise, but the Lord is king, let the heavens ring. For the beauty of the earth, for the glory of the skies, for thyself, best gift divine. The world is filled with beauty, Christ is the most beautiful. I was having a conversation with a friend, and this could just as easily apply to me, but this is actually a true story. Having a a conversation with a friend about his new daughter and, and, and how much he loved her and and just as so often can happen, a parent of a, of a young child starts thinking, I love this child so much, I've learned that there are, you know, there are parts of my heart that can love that I didn't even know existed before. And it can be easy to convince yourself that you love uh, this child so much that perhaps you love this child more than you love anything else, and perhaps in an idolatrous sense, even more than God. That, of course, would be sin and idolatry, but it's, it's easy to do. And my friend was worried about this. He said, I, I just feel like in my daily life, what am I treasuring the most? It's, it's my, my child. And I explained to him that the biblical vision is that when our loves are rightly ordered, when Christ is the brightest light in our lives, in our loves, that it allows us to actually love someone like our, our children even more. It brings up, it it turns the dimmer switch up on the rest of those loves. C.S. Lewis put it well when he said this. It was when I was happiest that I longed the most. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to find the place where all the beauty came from. And so to stand up and to say, Christ is my Lord. To stand up and to say, Christ is not only my master and my savior, but he is my treasure is to say, uh, the, the biblical vision of how to live in light of that would be to say that anything in this life that is true and that is good and that is beautiful is going to thrust my attention back onto my triune God to know that he is the one who created beauty. He is the one who created goodness. And I have no good apart from him. That is, only when I'm loving him first do I have any good in the rest of my life. He needs to be number one. He needs to be the, pri- the, the primary joy and primary love in our lives. Secondly is an uns- unshakable joy. So we need to have rightly ordered loves. I-, I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you, as Psalm 16 says. Secondly, uh, to love and to serve and to know and to follow Christ is to have an unshakable joy as we are living with the conviction that he is that pearl of great price. The the classical Christian vision is that anything anything beautiful, anything good in this world, according to God's word, ought to thrust our attention back onto God. Those things become mediators of our joy in Christ. The joy that we experience in this world fuels our love and our joy in God and in Christ. But to have the pearl of great price is to possess an unshakable joy that endures not only through good times, not only when beauty fills our soul with longing, but also in times of suffering. This is the the answer, Christ is the answer to any circumstance of your life. And to have him as treasure, to have him as master, to have him as savior, that's what all of this means. He is the pearl of great price. 
One pastor puts it this way in regards to having the pearl of great price and, and, and suffering. He said, we need to live with utter, an utter conviction that if we lived 80 years on this life, on this earth, in this life, filled with, with great suffering, perhaps never-ending suffering, and then we got to experience one hour with the Lord, one hour with the God who made us. We need to have the absolute conviction that if after that hour God turned to us and said, would you live another 80 years of the same to have one more hour with me? Would you do it? We need to have an utter conviction that all of us would say yes. That is the level of joy, the level of contentment, the level level of satisfaction that we will have and that we have even now by the power of the Spirit in our God and in Jesus Christ. To follow Jesus is to say that you have found the pearl of great price. It's to say that you have found that treasure that is, that is hidden in the field. When we stand up and we say that Christ has more value than my life, then we are glimpsing the deepest meanings of the gospel. So it, it accommodates and it informs the way that we think about joy and beauty in this world, Christ also teaches us the way that we think about suffering in this world. No matter what, we have the answer in that pearl of great price. Paul was a man who who gladly gave it all up. He essentially had a seat on the the Jewish Supreme Court. He gave it all up and lived a life of utter utter poverty and missionary work. Why? Because he found that pearl of great price. The, The disciples who ran in fear and denied Jesus, lived after the resurrection with an utter conviction that Christ was of more value than their very lives. And as Reverend Blau reminded us this morning, Peter, the one who denied Jesus, ended up crucified, crucified actually upside down uh, for the sake of the gospel. It was the Christian thinker, Stanley Hauerwas, who's not a a theologian I read very much. He, he actually I would disagree with him on a, a number of things, but he said this very beautiful and insightful thing. You need to live your life in such a way that God is the only explanation for it. You need to live your life in such a way that God is the only explanation for it. In other words, if there are those who don't see in Christ the pearl of great price, who have not stood up and said that I gladly will lose my life for Christ because when I lose my life, I find it. There there are those who do not have that love for Christ. They would look at your life and they would say, ultimately, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Now, there may be things about your life that ought to make sense to everyone around us. We... God informs things like common sense and and life and society is able to be ordered around those basic truths. But according to your ultimate convictions, if you have said, I am a follower of Christ, if you have said, I have found in him the pearl of great price, then according to ultimate things, the only reasonable explanation for your life must be God. That He is the one who shapes your ultimate convictions. He is the one who shapes your decisions. And those things of ultimate value and ultimate importance are those which the non-spiritual person cannot fully understand. 
I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago, reading a biography on Eric Little, Olympic champion, uh, UK Scotsman who uh, won the gold medal in the 400 meters. His, His event, as many of us know, his event was actually the 100 meters, and that's a highly coveted gold medal because it gives you the, the title, the fastest man on earth if you would win. And he had a legitimate shot to win. A preliminary race on, uh, in the 100 meters was on a Sunday. And so months before the Olympics, uh, he withdrew from that event. Didn't even give it a second thought. Right? It, was, it was not even a question to him that he wasn't going to uh, compete on a Sunday. A severe backlash and criticism followed all of this. This is the Olympics, people thought. You have every Sunday of the rest of your life to worship as you see fit. This is the, probably the one Olympics that you are going to be uh, going to have an opportunity to win a medal. Just one Sunday. How could you give up loyalty to your country representing all those around you? Uh, how could you give that up just because of one Sunday? Better is one day in your courts than a thousand days elsewhere. Uh, Eric Little, not only was he doing what was right, but he was doing what was his great joy. He was doing that which was his great joy. I've been talking a lot about worship and idolatry lately as we've thought about the book of Judges. And what we find is that as human beings, we are worshipers. We are worshipers. We will worship one thing or another. And we find that as we live our lives and as you, you take a look and all, what are the things that you value, what are the things that you treasure, what are the things you make time for, the heart, the human heart will always make room for what it treasures. The human heart will always make room for what it treasures. So a very, a very simple exercise that we can all go through as Christians, is to to look at our habits on the Lord's Day and we will see what it is that our hearts treasure. Any approach these days to the Lord's Day Sabbath that involves being intentional about resting from work and staying away from other certain things, that most of the time that's going to be cast these days as highly legalistic. Highly legalistic. But really, it's about joy. It's about joy and delight. It's about those who find in Christ the pearl of great price and know that there is nothing greater that we can experience on this earth than communion with the triune God by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 58. The Lord says this to his people. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath and from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and if you call the Sabbath a delight... And the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. That's one of the most tangible ways. And we can look at our own life and see that the heart makes room for what it treasures. The heart makes room for what it treasures. So we have rightly ordered loves in Christ. There's an unshakable joy in holding on to the pearl of great price. And those two things together, a, a glorying in the beauty of this world, in the beauty of, God's wor- in the beauty of God's world through his word, 
and in having an unshakable joy that can endure through suffering, both of those things together give us a confidence, a confidence that seeking God for God's own sake is the greatest, uh, the greatest mission of our lives, the greatest battle that we will ever fight. And to go back to that idea of the, the non-spiritual person, if they were to come and, and view our worship, and come and see those standing in the midst of the congregation making professions of faith. They're to come and to see us gathering around uh, the table of the Lord and participating in the joy of the sacraments. They, they might say, well, all of that may be fine, but what do you actually get out of it? What is the utility of worship? Now, of course, all of us who know Christ and love Christ know that there are immeasurable blessings that we get from uh, worshiping God the right way. But even beyond what we get out of it, when we stand up and we sing to God, when our mouths are filled with his praise, when we go habitually to his word to find uh, the wisdom there and to find his truth there, we know that all of these things, they don't need any justification outside of themselves because we are to seek God for his own sake. We seek God for his own sake. It needs no justification. It needs no utility beyond just that, the worship and the love and the communion that we have with God. That's why we were made in the high priestly prayer of Jesus. What does he pray? Father, I have made you known to these, and I want them to be one even as I am in you and you are in me, and then I want them to come and be one in us. Communion with the triune God. That's why Jesus made us. And so the highest calling that we have to love God, to serve God, to know God, all of that is justified in and of itself because it is why we were created. It needs no utility or usefulness beyond itself. When we are filled with this desire, uh, this joy, this unshakable joy, this glorying in the beauty of God, what does it thrust us towards? What did we sing? My God, how wonderful thou art. How great it will be to gaze and to gaze on thee. Psalm 16 at the end, what does it say? In your presence there is fullness of joy. Psalm 17 at the end, it says, As for me, I will behold your face in righteousness, and when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. I'll be satisfied when I see God. When I see him, I will be satisfied. The astounding part of that is, brothers and sisters, that we are filled with that longing to be with God and to gaze upon him in the face of Jesus Christ. We are filled with that desire, and yet we know that we are sinners. We know that we do not have any ability to come into the presence of holiness in and of ourselves, and yet to know Christ And to know the power of his resurrection is to be filled with a longing and a desire to be in his presence and to gaze upon the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts will not find rest until they find their rest in thee. To gaze upon Jesus Christ, to long to see him, is really where that idea of the pearl of great price is taking us. To be filled with a longing to be with him. To be in communion with him. And so as you look around this world and you see beauty. You see things that are good. uh, 
You see things that you love. If you found Christ to be the pearl of great price, let it redound unto your love for him. Let your heart be filled with a desire to see the place and to see the one where all the beauty came from. If you live your life with Jesus Christ as the pearl of great price, as the treasure that is hidden in a field, and if you go after him according to his word and by the power of the Spirit and in the gospel, you will be given an unshakable joy that can endure in good times and bad. And when you seek God for his own sake, know that when you do so, you are doing that for which you were created. And if there is no utility or usefulness, that this world can see and know in all of that. Know that you are still doing what God has created you to do. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Jesus Christ is the pearl of great price because all of us, poor, wretched sinners, can look to him and can trust in his work and can look at the work at Calvary finished on the cross for us, for our sin. And behold it, and we can accept that work as effectual for us, not just as he, the savior of sinners, somewhere out there that has no meaning for me, but he is my savior. He suffered on the cross for me. And because I am cleansed through him and through his blood, I can be filled with this desire to behold his face someday. And I will do so forever, forever. To those who have made profession today, I commend you and I thank you so much. What a treasure it is, what a blessing it is to be reminded of what these things mean. And for all of us who have done the same, for those of us perhaps who have not, but think it ought to be something we should do, let those things reign in your heart and your mind today. That Jesus Christ is the pearl of great price. And to have him and to hold him gives us that unshakable joy and confidence uh, to know that we ought to do what we were created to do, to seek God for his own sake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you. You have given your Son as the greatest gift of all. We ask that uh, you would impress upon our hearts uh, the value, the value of knowing you in Jesus Christ, that you would fill our hearts with, with a joy that is found in, in Christ alone, and uh, that you would fill our lives with, uh, with clear signs and signals that Jesus is our pearl of great price, that we would live our life in such a way that God is the only possible explanation. Empower us to do that through your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you would take your...